2,000 years ago, the dream of rotorcraft flight stirred deep in the human mind. Children in Jin Dynasty China sensed that dream soaring with bamboo propellers, shielding their eyes from the sun while looking to the same sky we now navigate. The dream took a shape a thousand years later when Leonardo da Vinci sketched his blueprint for the first VTOL flying machine. And in 1939, the dream left paper when Igor Sikorsky lifted off in Stratford, Connecticut. His flight touched down after just three seconds, but what it stood for never did. Five years later, the first combat helicopter scraped the skies of a world at war. And two years after that, the Bell 47 was certificated for civilians, spinning up over a world piece back together. It's been 80 years since then, but that dream of rotorcraft flights still takes lift in thousands worldwide who wish to make their way in and out of the cockpit. You would be hard-pressed to find in those 80 years someone as dedicated to that dream as our guest today. Tim Tucker began his helicopter journey more than 50 years ago. He didn't plan to join our industry from the start, but the most potent dreams often catch us unaware. Since 1982, Tim has served as chief instructor at Robinson Helicopter. He's established himself as an icon in the world of safety, and his vast experience makes him the perfect guest for our inaugural episode. We'll learn about Tim's roots in aviation, defined by his stint in the Vietnam War. He'll give us insights into his time at Robinson and expand on a design principle unique to Robinson Helicopters. And if we listen closely, some of Tim's humble wisdom might stick with us to be applied when we need it most. This is Push to Talk with Bruce Webb. Episode 1. Better than digging foxholes. If someone were to ask me about Tim Tucker, I would say not only a fantastic pilot, but a fantastic person and a, a safety advocate. And so welcome to the show, Tim. We're pleased that you're here today. Well, thank you very much, Bruce. Those are uh, kind words. Before there was a Robinson helicopter, Tim Tucker, what, what was Tim's story? What's your backstory? Well, um, since I've been a pilot for over 50 years, 52 years now, uh, that's that's uh, uh, going back a ways. Uh, it's kind of interesting. I learned to fly in the U.S. Army, but getting into the Army was somewhat... Uh, uh, a strange route. I graduated from college in 1969. And those of you who don't know 1969, it was a pretty volatile year on college campuses in the U.S. A lot of uh, anti-Vietnam War protests going on. Kent State shooting was about to happen, hadn't quite happened yet. So as I say, it was a pretty volatile time. And I had held a deferment from being drafted throughout my undergraduate uh, uh, study. But when I graduated, I lost that deferment. And the only way you could continue that deferment was if you went into medicine, you'd be a doctor or dentist, something like that. Or if uh, you went into teaching, you're going to be a teacher. But if you're going to go on and go to law school or an MBA or anything like that, you were exposed to the draft. And I got drafted uh, about, oh, probably about two weeks after I graduated from College. Now, when you get drafted, you get given a period of time. It's about 10 days where you can go and enlist into whatever service you want to go into. And assuming you meet all the requirements, take the appropriate tests, you can actually pick a thing to do in the service. So, for example, if you want to drive tanks or you want to be a frogman or, or drive helicopters, whatever, 
as long as you meet all the appropriate uh, requirements, take the appropriate tests, you can actually sign up for that. Or you can just be drafted. It's only a two-year requirement, and you go where the military wants you or needs you, which at that time was typically the infantry and the army. Sure, absolutely. I was right in that that time, that 10-day, two-week period where uh, I had to choose whether I was just going to be drafted or actually. uh, And I was back home. I was at a local pub. And I ran into a friend of mine who four years ago, we'd graduated from high school together. I went off to college. He went off to the army and flew helicopters. We happened to meet in a bar one night and he just thrilled me with these stories of of flying a helicopter in Vietnam and convinced me that if you go to Vietnam, Tim, you definitely don't want to carry a gun on the ground. You, The only way to go is flying these helicopters. Now, I had never flown anything. In fact, I think... I'd probably been on an airliner once or twice in my life at that point. But he just convinced me that uh, seeing Vietnam from 1,500 feet (laughs) was a whole lot better than... uh, Digging foxholes. So the next day, I went down to the recruiter and said, I want to be a helicopter pilot. They sent me for a flight physical, and I had to take a... It's called the FAST test, flight aptitude test, um, and pass all all the things and, and got into flight school. Interestingly, on the FAST test, which is, as I say, a, a flight aptitude test, uh, and they, the questions they ask you are, are uh, trying to judge your aptitude for flying, and the minimum score is 70%. I got 70%. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, had I got one of those questions wrong or not known exactly, you know, um, which end was up on these tests? I fate probably was interesting. Gone on and done something else. Sure. But uh, so you enlisted. You were in the army. You went to. You were already an off. You were already a graduate. So you were not a W four. You went no, in as an I, officer. Or? You could. Uh, I went around to all the services uh, to check on being a pilot. Uh, Air Force, Navy, and the Army. The problem was that in the Air Force and the Navy, the commitment after flight school was five years. And in the Army, the commitment after flight school was three years. So that pretty much, that and the conversation I'd had with Your friend. this friend kind of convinced me that uh, uh, the Army, because at the time, the difference between an airplane and a helicopter didn't mean didn't much. Ma- to, right. you know? So I enlisted for warrant officer training. So you go through basic training for eight weeks, and then you go to, at that time, Fort Walters, Texas, for the first five months of helicopter training, and then the last four months was at Fort Rucker, Alabama. And then you get uh, 30 days leave and then right to Vietnam. Pretty much everybody in the class, class after class, went to Vietnam. Very unusual for someone to go some other place, Germany or whatever, Mm -hmm. Korea. Of course. uh, when you were at Walters, did you did you have your initial training in the Hillers or the Hughes? In the Hughes, the the way they did it was uh, the taller people uh, went in the uh, Hillers, which is the Army designation with an H twenty three. It's really a Hiller twelve a civilian uh, model, and then the shorter guys went into the TH fifty five, which is a uh, use a model 269. Right. That's what I learned in. I'm yeah. not very tall either. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. So you were in the, so you, you did, how long were you in Vietnam? So I was in Vietnam for a year, 12 months, which was a standard normal uh, tour at the time. 
And when I came back from Vietnam at that time, the war was winding down, early 70s, and you could get out of the Army if you wanted to. But I decided to stay in for next year because they're requiring that everybody get an instrument rating. So I thought that might come in handy uh, later on. So I stayed in for an extra year in, in order to get that uh, instrument rating in the Army. Wow. So I was sent to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, 101st Airborne, and I spent another year there getting my instrument rating. So when you deployed to Vietnam then, you were VFR only in the U.S. Correct. In flight school, you got, I'd say it was about 30 or 40 hours, and you got what the Army called a tactical instrument ticket. It wasn't a full instrument rating. It was just enough instrument training so that uh, in hopes of inadvertently getting into a, an instrument situation, you had some idea of what to do to get out of it. Right. You had some chance. Yeah. Not a great chance, but some well, chance. Well, it ended up serving me well. Yeah. A, you know, I did Tell have, us about I that. I did, did have a, an IMC occurrence in Vietnam, and uh, it, it really uh, it affected me or has affected me, uh, gee, since uh, my entire career, I think. Uh, it was a situation where I was a brand new aircraft commander. And typically, a brand new aircraft commander, they give you the missions for the first oh, week, two weeks, something like that, that uh, relatively uh, easy, not much chance of of uh, too many bad things happening. Uh, so they kind of get used to running the show and being an aircraft commander. So I had this mission to fly from uh, my base, which was in Pleiku in Tukor, down to a city called Bambi Tuit. And I had to take these two American colonels, just from one place to another. It's a pretty easy flight. However, it was in the uh, rainy season, and the weather was uh, pretty bad. However, in Vietnam, they taught us to you either flew above fifteen hundred feet, because then you were uh, you, you know you were out of small arms fire way, or if you couldn't do that, you flew real low, uh, treetop level. And if you flew treetop level, you flew as fast as you could. And that's what they told us. So here the weather was bad. So, you know, I'm flying about 110 knots uh, trying to follow this road and came over a ridgeline and the weather just dropped down to the, uh, you know, to the ground. And it was like a bullet just going into this fog bank. And so I jump on the instruments. And remember, there are two pilots here. Now, at this point, I'd probably, it'd probably been six or seven months, maybe eight months since my tactical instrument training in flight school. So I'm trying to bring all that back and <laughs> develop a scan. My co-pilot, who had been in Vietnam less time than I, but had only been probably three or four months since his tactical time. Well, it, we started a climb and it took both of us scanning the instruments to uh, keep that helicopter right side up. And I can remember, I mean, I would be looking at 30 knots and he'd say, airspeed, airspeed, airspeed. And then I'm looking at 110 knots and a bank left and bank right. And we just kind of nose high, nose low, steep turn left, steep turn right, kind of waddled our way up. And we broke out about 11,000 feet. And so there we are, it's VFR on top, beautiful day. And we always carried all the um, charts, instrument charts, in route charts uh, with us, even though we'd never looked at them or never used them. So it took us a few minutes to dig those out. And 
at Bambi to it, they had an NDB approach. And I can remember uh, talking with my co-pilot, uh, oh, do we fly this heading and how long do we fly outbound? And <laughs> when we make this procedure turn, when do we leave? And between the two of us, we kind of remembered you know, enough, enough to, to, to attempt this uh, NDB approach. And you have to understand the NDP beacons in Vietnam were not real strong. So the needle would move maybe 10, 15 degrees left or right. Uh, so you just kind of had to pick uh, the, the middle, uh, you know, <laughs> and take it from there. So so we, we kind of got down to what our procedure was going to be. We began tracking right towards the uh, NDB and figured out how we we're going to turn outbound and when we we're going to uh, begin a descent. And I can remember... Uh, we'd probably been now VFR on top for 15 or 20 minutes getting to the NDB. And so I had some, a little bit of time to prepare myself and, and that type of thing. But I can remember as we turned outbound and I had to start a descent and go back into these damn clouds, uh, you know, I really was unsure what was going to happen. But uh, between the two of us, we were able to make our way outbound. We did a procedure turn. We started inbound. And then we went through a hole, and I could actually see the jungle, probably 2,500 feet below me. Uh, so that's all I needed. Not enough of these clouds. <laughs> so um, I rolled the throttle off, entered auto rotation, brought the speed back to about 10 knots, and we just went straight down in this hole. And I think the ceiling was probably about six or 700 feet. It wasn't that low. But as soon as we broke out, um, rolled that throttle back, back on and, and continued VFR. But the interesting thing, and, you know, I, I normally don't take the time to go through that whole story. But I think the interesting thing is that scared the living hell out of me so much that I have had a number of situations. I don't know, five, six, seven times during my career since then where I've had a situation where landing the helicopter was, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say the only option, but it was either land the helicopter or get into those clouds again. And even years later, when uh, I've got uh, quite a bit more instrument experience uh, and flying in the clouds, I still wanted no part of that going inadvertently IMC. So I've landed... And to use the HAI's term now, landed and lived um, a number of times. And I think knowing what that initial IMC experience was like and how terrifying it was has made it much easier for me to, as I say, land the damn helicopter. Absolutely. That, uh, well, we spoke about this yesterday or day before yesterday. You know, there's a difference between knowing the, the danger and understanding the danger and your experience took Provides you from knowing to yeah. that understanding. Then I think it's interesting that, you know, there are, there, are, there are those of us who've had encounters like that, who were fortunate enough to survive, and then that made an indelible mark and changed our behavior forward. And no so, question. No so question. when you look at the the the... the you know, how the world, there's, there are defining moments in our lives that really change the future of your life. And, you know, being drafted into Vietnam at the time that you were, well, you were drafted, then you chose to go into the Army. 
um, that was, you know, a, a, a defining moment in your life. And then later with this event, it changed. I propose that you may not be here today had you not had that harrowing experience because the first time you had that harrowing experience may have been in a civilian aircraft by yourself at night uh, in, you know, in different conditions. And maybe you wouldn't have survived. Maybe I wouldn't survive. We, we, you know, it's, it was fate, if you will, that that event happened. And like many things in life, I believe what looked to be something horrible at the time may have been the biggest blessing you've ever received. Oh, no question about it. Well, certainly I think there, there are a number of experiences I've had, especially in a combat situation where that can be true. But interestingly, you know, I've gone on in the Army and not only got an instrument rating, but, you know, have flown quite a bit, you know, in the clouds, IFR, in an Army helicopter. But it's so much different when you plan an IFR flight, you get an IFR clearance, you fly that clearance, and then shoot and approach it at the end. That's so much different than if you inadvertently punch in. And I think the helicopter industry in general, and that may be changing now, but certainly this is the way it was in the past. Everybody treated this instrument flying kind of as an emergency procedure. In other words, you try to stay VFR, VMC as long as you possibly can. But if you inadvertently punch in, or if you get to a point where you choose to punch in, you hope all these instrument skills that you've taught come rushing back to you, and you're able to deal with this inadvertent IMC situation. And in most cases, that's not going to be there. So that's not going to happen. Um, yeah, the data supports and, that. Yeah, and so I mean, look, look at airplanes. Uh, airplanes, you get a file an instrument flight plan, you get a clearance, and you know you fly that route and then shoot an approach. You know, you know. We in the helicopter world, we have very little of that type of instrument flying going on. Perhaps uh, some of the offshore areas in the world they do it, but other than that, it's it's not the norm at all. Uh, we use it. We use this instrument rating and this instrument training we've gotten uh, as an emergency procedure, uh, and and that just gets people into trouble. Right, I agree, hundred percent. We and when we think about it from a from a instrument standpoint, if you are shooting a like your NDB approach or any non precision approach, they're going to drop you off somewhere around four hundred feet above the surface. There are most helicopter pilots are not punching in inadvertent IMC at 400 feet above the surface. Unfortunately, they're punching in at, you know, somewhere between two and 400 feet probably. And so they're already lower than you can legally fly a fixed wing IMC. In other words, if you shoot sure. an approach. So, yeah, I, I, I find that fascinating that, you know, in the... I guess we first started flying helicopters civilly in this country in 1946, summer of 46. The Bell 47 was certificated. And since that time, of course, we weren't flying those IMC. But since that time, we've had way too many accidents because people do find themselves, they place themselves in situations where they're either forced to land and live or proceed in the clouds. And after you've been in that situation, it's you're you're a great example of that. You, you yourself have made several land and live decisions, not continuing and punching in, even though you're instrument rated, instrument capable, and probably 
more competent than many aviators in that arena, but you choose not to. Correct. And I think, you know, I remember probably 10, maybe 15 years ago, as a pilot examiner, a lot of people were coming to me for instrument, helicopter instrument uh, tests. And in many instances, it might have been an EMS company wants all their pilots now to have instrument ratings or somebody wants to get an instrument rating to qualify for a job at one of these uh, um, emergency medical uh, companies. And I kept thinking, you know, this whole idea of people getting an instrument rating, it's going to somehow help them a year down the road some night and they've just gone to a scene to pick up some people and now they need to get back to the hospital and they inadvertently punch in that this instrument rating that they got 12 months ago, 18 months ago, uh, was actually going to help them here. And I think it's actually had the opposite effect. It's It won't help them at all, but it might give them the confidence or the overconfidence to perhaps do something or take a flight further because they, well, I've got an instant rating. It may I, embolden them. Yeah, I have an instant rating so I can, you know, and it's nothing could be further from the truth. Correct. And when we look at the empirical data, the accident statistics, when we look at fatal accidents, at least over the past 20 years, there's no correlation between having an instrument ticket and not having one with respect to fatal accidents. In other words, an equal number of those persons who are deceased had instrument tickets. So uh, I think the numbers bear out what you've seen, that it's not going to stop you from harming yourself potentially. And I think the the pilots that do fly helicopters on instruments on a regular basis have an understanding that actually being IMC in the clouds is so much different than just wearing a hood, having a safety pilot next to you, clear blue, sunny day, and you have a hood on, that's a different thing than actually being uh, IMC in the clouds. Uh, so people who may have said, well, I'm current, I've been flying, but they've been flying with a hood on, a sunny day with a safety pilot, sometimes an instrument instructor next to them. It's a whole different uh, animal right. than actually going into the clouds. Even if you're on an IFR flight plan, I remember many times punching into a cloud in the IFR where where those first half a minute, maybe a minute, you know, you spend that time really zeroing in on that cross check and getting comfortable uh, flying in the cloud. And it takes a, a little bit of time to make that transition, even when you know it's coming, when you plan uh, for it. So if you inadvertently or surprisingly punch in, I mean, you just got your hands full. And you're anxious. In other words, most of us are not flying in clear blue and 22 very calm, very relaxed, and then the next moment we're inadvertently IMC. It is a buildup, and the buildup is, you know, if you had a pulse oximeter on yourself, I'm sure you'd see that your heart rate is very rapid. Your O2 saturations are descending. They're getting lower. You're not making good decisions. You're anxious, a lot of adrenaline, a lot, you know, and all of that leads to, well, unfortunately, um, Crashes. Yeah. I don't know uh, uh, who's a famous pilot said this. I, 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 can't, I can't recall his name uh, right away. But uh, he said once, we all have limited mental capabilities, and this situation will require all of it. 
You ever heard that before, Bruce? <laughs> I have, yeah. I, <laughs> I, I appreciate that, Tim. I, you know, and my, my, my capabilities are very limited, but I do think that we can overestimate our capability and our mental capacity. We know it's fascinating, and, and we're designed to be this way. Humans are designed this way. If someone were to, pilots. Yes, especially <laughs> pilots. We know our physical limitations. None of us are going to go out and you nor I are going to walk outside right now and run a four-minute mile. It didn't happen, and we know that. But if someone were to say, hey, can you do X? Can you do this mental computation? Would You, you know, oftentimes we overestimate what we can do. Sure, sure. And, but that's almost the nature of the beast with, with pilots. They're all... You know, uh, type A type people. I mean, I remember in Vietnam, we'd have missions that the requirement was you had to volunteer for it. And everybody volunteered. In fact, we'd get into arguments. You know, you got to go last time. I get to go this time um, right. kind of thing. It's uh, it's kind of almost the, the, the nature of the beast. I remember I've heard Frank Robinson uh, say this many times. He calls pilots their prima donnas. I can't stand hiring a pilot. They're all <laughs> prima donnas. <laughs> Well, he hired a good one when he got you. That's for certain. <laughs> it, it is very true. I, I This was back during Katrina, which was now, oh my gosh, Katrina was almost 20 years ago. It was 05, I believe, Katrina. Uh, we were flying and uh, I remember uh, Frank, I won't say his last name, but a fantastic pilot, a friend of mine. Frank, we were flying down there and, uh, you know, I, I said, listen, we got to stop. And he's like, no, I, I can do it. We can keep going. And I said, no, we've been flying like 15 hours. It's now, you know, midnight and uh, we got to stop. And f from that point previously and subsequent to that, I, I, it made me think, I've never had a pilot ever tell me they can't. If you ask someone, you could go out of the flight line after someone's flown 15 hours in a combat zone and say, hey, listen, I need someone to do X. And probably every pilot will say, Pick me. Yep. I, I totally agree. Even when they're fatigued beyond belief, even when they're, but again, it goes back to how we mask from ourselves, our mental capacity, our level of alertness, our, because there's no way none of us are sharp after five, 10, 15, 12, pick the number. When we're fatigued, we're fatigued. And so you, you've had many occasions in your career to fly some missions, which were uh, volunteer only. And so can you tell, can you share any of those with us? I, I, I do know that you have earned the distinguished flying cross or multiple ones. So would you be kind enough to share a story with us about that? I think that's something people don't know. And I, I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I think it's fascinating. Um, well, uh, sure. I hate to get into telling, telling war stories. Um, but, uh, I think, uh, well, I, I've got a list of them or, uh, you know, uh, that I could go through. But I think the, the context was probably important. The, the unit I was in in Vietnam had a specific mission where we took uh, long-range reconnaissance patrols uh, across, outside of Vietnam, across the Laotian border into Laos and would insert them anywhere from maybe 20 to 40 miles inside of Laos along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And their mission was well, somewhat varied, uh, either just look for troop concentrations or, you know, count troops and equipment moving down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, 
Sometimes it was a prisoner snatch to gain intelligence. Um, we would insert them and then we'd go back to a base uh, just inside of Vietnam and wait. And if they got into contact, into problems, then we would have to go get them. And typically when we went to get them, they couldn't choose the landing place. So they were where they were. And it was a thick, triple canopy jungle in the area. So uh, my unit, long before I'd gotten there, had developed this technique using either 40-foot ladders or 110-foot, we called them strings, but uh, they're four strings, two that come out of each side of the the UE and and the people on the ground would wear these McGuire rigs that kind of went through their crotch up around and they had two D-rings up on their shoulders. And the string came down and there was a horizontal bar that they would just clamp these D-rings to and we would just lift four people um, you know, out of the jungle. And, and So the teams were teams of four? Teams of four. And so if there were eight uh, on the ground, then we'd use two extraction ships. And every time we went into Laos, we always took six Hueys and four, when I was there, Cobra gunships. And we would typically have either two Navy A7s or Air Force F4s that were on station in case any uh, uh, any of their firepower was, was needed. Uh, and... The way we worked it is of our six Hueys, ships one, three, and five were the extraction ships. Ship two, four, and six were only there in case one, three, or five got shot down. So ship two was responsible for ship one. So if ship one got shot down, it was up to ship two to get that crew out. Same sure. thing for four, uh, four was responsible for three. Uh, and... The whole mission would be is if you got above the jungle, which was typically maybe 200, 250 feet high, but your strings were only 110 feet high. So you would have to hover down into the jungle to get close enough to where the strings would would work. So between the door gunner and the crew chief uh, on the left and right-hand side of the helicopter and the co-pilot sitting in the right seat, You'd be on top of the jungle, and the crew chief would tell you to either come down 10 feet, then move the helicopter five feet to the left, slide to the left, bring the nose 10 degrees to the right, and now come down. And you just slowly work your way through the jungle. If you needed to chop a tree down or a branch down. It sounds unhealthy for the blades. (laughs) uh, You'd be amazed what a UH UH-1 rotor blade can do. Um, I've seen it chop trees down that are probably uh, three, four inches in diameter. And you finally get yourself down low enough to where the strings would reach. And so the crew would deploy the strings. Uh, guys on the ground would, would uh, hook on. And then you have to make that same route back up through the jungle. Uh, and once you got to the top of the jungle, now you've got these people 110 feet below you. So you have to get 110 feet above the jungle uh, to be able to then go into your takeoff. And, and that's when you are the most exposed we kind of liked being down in the jungle because even though the bad guys could hear you and a lot of shooting going on, they couldn't see you. So they're just shooting at noise. And, of course, they could get lucky. But uh, but when you were exposed above the jungle trying to get the team out, now anybody with a clear shot at you could uh, could take aim. So that was always the, the uh, tricky part. 
And then we would climb up to five, 6,000 feet, depending on the location, uh, and have a 30, 40 minute flight back to South Vietnam. I cannot with, imagine. With, with these guys dangling below the, all the time. And it was, all the pilots wore these McGuire rigs because if you got shot down, there was a good chance that's how you were going to be uh, rescued. So uh, one of our qualifications for new pilots, uh, and we think we did this on a probably a quarterly basis where you had to actually go on the strings yourself. And uh, But we treated it as a fun thing. We had, uh, um, you know, we, we as a ride, and we'd always uh, dump the, the new pilot into the local river for, uh, you know, but it was, uh, uh, actually we, we, we enjoyed it, um, uh, and look forward to uh, a ride on the strings, but in the combat situation in Laos, it was, uh, so it was missions like this that allowed you to earn your distinguished flying cross. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. I am. Yeah, I, I'm certain every listener will be very impressed. And that it's is, the kind of thing that we didn't do it once or twice. This would be a three or four times a week, week in, week out uh, affair. So right. it got to be fairly uh, standard. Uh, so I, I can't help but sit here and think that you're a man who 30 minutes ago was telling us that when you went introvert in IMC, it was frightening. It, it, it made an impact upon you. Definitely, yeah. But not but doing what you were doing. So I guess what strikes me is that doing something that most people would consider to be the ultimate risky thing, right? Placing your aircraft in harm's way for many, many minutes to extract people was less, made it less of a, it wasn't as frightening to you as being in those clouds for a few minutes. Well, I think, of course, you know, the com the whole combat thing is, is different. Um, and, I mean, that's that's an environment in and of itself. And the rules are different. The risks you'll take are different. Uh, and it's just a, a different world. Uh, whereas the IMC experience, I mean, there's an experience that actually translates into other flying that I've done, you know, since uh, since Vietnam. And so, the as I say, it translates, I think, fairly well. Where the combat situation... I mean, that's fairly unique. Yes. Um, and I'd say fairly like unique. Like I say, it's got correct. its own set of rules. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, Well, thank you for sharing that. I know that uh, you're a humble person, so I know that that's not something you typically talk about, but I think it's something that people are interested in. So thank you for sharing that with us. Let's take, let's take a few minutes and come back to something more current. So uh, Robinson Helicopter, I mean, when someone says Robinson helicopter, I think the follow-on is Tim Tucker, or the precursor <laughs> is Tim Tucker, at least from a pilot standpoint. And again, um, I know Tim doesn't recall, but actually Tim and I flew together, it was probably, I don't know, I will say 1987. I could go back in a logbook and look, but I, I went to the Robinson safety course. Actually, I'd, I'd been flying an R-22. I was flying a standard. And then I flew some Alphas and Bravos, and ultimately we had a customer purchase a Bravo, or maybe it's an Alpha. I, I'd have to go back and look. I can't remember. And uh, so we became a Robinson Service Center, and then that necessitated to be a service center. that We had to send technicians to training, which was fantastic, and I went to pilot school. So 
Tim doesn't remember. I wouldn't expect him to. I had hair back then. <laughs> but uh, I flew with uh, Tim in an R-42 or an R-22 Mariner. It was Frank's Mariner. And that's oh, what, yeah. That's yeah. what we did our training in was in Frank's Mariner. So yeah. anyway, it's a small world. So tell us the beginnings of, of Robinson from your perspective. So when you, when you joined Robinson, what, what were you thinking? <laughs> what happened is I saw in, in the mid-70s, uh, myself and four other guys, we owned an airplane flight school. Uh, we had 20-some-odd airplanes, and we're doing airplane trainings. And I saw an ad, or not an ad, it was a story in the Los Angeles Times about this fella uh, up on the Palos Verdes Peninsula that was designing this small light helicopter. And even though I was teaching airplanes, I was a frustrated helicopter uh, instructor at the time. So I went and visited him and I saw his prototype and make a long story short, uh, we put a deposit down on the first uh, one that they, that they made. Obviously where I was located was about five miles from Torrance airport, Long Beach airport. And Robinson wanted to have that first or those first few helicopters as close to home as possible because they were the ones who were going to do the maintenance it would be kind of strange to have the first helicopter, say, on the East Coast, and the East Coast operator calls up and says it's making this noise or I've got this vibration. Troubleshooting would be difficult uh, from a transcontinental standpoint. So he wanted the, the helicopters close. So we put a deposit down, and we took delivery of the first production helicopter, serial number three. Serial number one was the original R-22. Uh, it first flew in 1975. However, it crashed about halfway through the FAA approval program, went into the Pacific Ocean where we did most of our flight testing, sunk, spent three days at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. So when they finally found it and pulled it up, it was no good anymore. So the company built serial number two, which was then used to complete the FAA certification program. And serial number three, the one I purchased, was the one that was used to get the production certificate. There's kind of two steps or two stages to this whole approval program. First, to get the design approved, and that's the type certificate. But then you have to demonstrate to the FAA that you can build the helicopters to the same specification that the design calls Meet for. Conformity. And, and that's a production certificate. So the one I bought was the one that uh, was used to get the uh, production certificate. Uh, so uh, we then, um, uh, that was serial number three. Uh, we also operated serial number four. Uh, and so we were the first operators. Uh, we had a flight school at Long Beach. And at the time, I think the going rate for helicopter training then was about anywhere from 130 to perhaps $150, typically in a Bell 47 or uh, a Hughes uh, 300. So when we came on in, in late 1979, we charged $48 an hour. Wow. And so pretty much, you know, 70% discount off the off the normal training rate. And as you might imagine, we were jammed. Uh, <laughs> we were jammed. Uh, and, uh, you know, but then uh, the helicopter had some issues with blades and uh, as you might expect a, a new helicopter to have, but... Uh, as I say, it's it's been a a wild ride uh, that Frank Robinson has certainly um, produced, and and I've been oh, along for the whole ride. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, fantastic machine. So the the I, I, I 
as I recall, so I may be incorrect, Tim, but I believe that the original ships, the standards, and maybe I think only the standards, the blades were manufactured out of house. And then he brought blade manufacturing in-house to resolve some of the issues that they had with the blades? Yeah, well, actually, the components of the blades were manufactured at Robinson, but the bonding process was done outside of Robinson. And the first blade problem was a bonding, bonding problem. Sure. And so Frank brought that whole bonding issue or uh, process, back. process back into the factory where it's been ever since. Right. And I don't think they had any debonding. The, the trailing edges debonded on some of the first aircraft that yeah, he actually, didn't bond. Right. We had trailing edge bonding issues, which really isn't going to cause a problem. But then they had a debonding on the leading edge, which actually caused a problem. Blade failed and killed two people. Right. But after after when Robinson took control of all of it, I don't believe there's ever no, been another issue. No. That's right. That's yeah. correct. I mean, that's yep. a testament. If if anyone anyone listening that's not been to the Robinson facility, it is uh, impressive. I mean, to say the least, it's impressive. And I I don't know all the statistics. Perhaps the host should know. But I think uh, the, the R-22s, the R-44s, the R-66s, certainly if you add them together, uh, they, they've outsold any other helicopter model, single model in the history of helicopters. Is that true? Well, I think when you take away uh, military sales, that's probably true. Yeah, it's been fantastically successful. I probably have only, I don't know, I might have 300 hours in R-22s, probably mostly standards, and then a little in the other alphas and betas, but maybe an hour in an R-44, and I've only seen an R-66, so I'm, I'm really not, I'm not even, I'm not even an amateur. But my experience with the ship has always been fantastic. And people will be critical of the cyclic configuration. And they say, well, that's just, that's a ridiculous configuration. And I believe I know why it was designed that way. uh, And I've never had any issue with it. But can you shed light on why Frank chose to do it that way, to have a central cyclic? I just preface this discussion by saying that uh, Frank or Robinson Helicopter Company actually has a patent on the T-bar cyclic design. And the purpose of the T-bar cyclic design is to increase the amount of lateral cyclic control available to the pilot. You know, the R-22, it's fairly narrow. So when you sit in it, your legs are, are fairly close together. So if you had the standard cyclic that came up between your legs, the lateral cyclic would be limited by your two legs. And that would mean that the control power or the sensitivity of that cyclic would be quite high. So by having the handle come up and be able to pass over your legs, you actually increase the total cyclic travel by about 11 inches, which desensitizes the lateral cyclic control, which is the number one reason for the T-bar cyclic. Some additional benefits are by just having one set of control linkages that saves weight. It saves on maintenance and, you know, a few less parts that can break. So there are some some benefits, but to desensitize the lateral cyclic control is the number one reason. And that's especially true in the R-22. Now, when we get to the R-44, it's probably less true because the cockpit is wider in the R-22, and certainly that's true in the R-66. But it was, the design was kept in the R-44 because the R-44 is, for all intents and purposes, just a big R-22. From a design standpoint, 
it's uh, pretty much the same helicopter. But we found now there's some added benefits to the T-bar cyclic control. It makes getting in and out of the helicopter much easier. There's not a, a cyclic coming up out of the floor. I know if anybody's ever gotten into the front seat of a MD-500, you have to almost be a contortionist, to, <laughs> especially on a high-skid gear, to work your way into, into that seat. So it makes getting in and out of the helicopter much easier. And plus, and it takes a little bit of getting used to, but uh, once one gets used to that T-bar cyclic and they move over into the instructor's side, now actually taking the flight controls or the cyclic from the instructor is quite a bit easier because you actually pull the cyclic handle down and the corresponding cyclic handle for the uh, student comes out from the top of his hand. So they're, they're not set up to uh, resist that as though if uh, you tried to rip it out of their hands laterally or longitudinally, uh, they, could, they could resist that. And if you have a student that freezes, then that's going um, to be bad. So it makes it easier to actually uh, take the controls away from, uh, uh, from the student. So uh, that's a number of reasons there why the design sure. is, is stayed with. Right. The, right. Uh, well, I can say that my thigh has limited my lateral cyclic displacement on many occasions and under other aircraft, unfortunately. And the R-22, when its initial concept was not as a training aircraft, was it? Is that true? It that's was, correct. Yeah. It, just, it was supposed to be a, a you know, personal use. Uh, and Frank used it that way. He, you know, he flew his own aircraft sure. forever. Yeah. I mean, uh, not quite down to the market to get a gallon of milk, but right. uh, certainly he would go off on trips and and land at hotel parking lots or uh, things like that. Uh, and I think a lot of the innovation may be an exaggeration, but a lot of the modifications, you know, when he felt like something was not quite right or something could be improved, I mean, it was from his own use of the aircraft, allowed him to have a better understanding of what his consumer was experiencing. Yeah, not only that, he would be the one to test a lot of the new uh, systems or things that would go on there. Um, and right. he'd, he'd normally sometimes, uh, let's say, uh, the air conditioner or the hydraulics, uh, things like that. He would uh, put it on his personal ship first and fly it on his personal ship for a period of time before he was happy with it and say, okay, now we'll go into production, production with, with it. it. Right. Outstanding. From my recollection, Robinson is the only helicopter company which has actually gone to the regulators and said, hey, listen. We'd like to tighten some things up. We, we've got a flight manual that allows, you know, we have limitations in our flight manual, but we want to tighten some things up. And Robinson went to the authorities, the FAA, and worked with the FAA to add some additional regulations to the operation of the aircraft. What's been your experience with that process? Well, are you specifically, you're talking about SFAR 73? Sure. Yep. Well, I, I tell you, Bruce, the whole evolution of SFAR 73, it's, it's, uh, uh, probably too too much of a story or an explanation to go into now. Um, I will just plug um, my website, Tim Tucker's Helicopter World, because I d have written uh, a fairly long explanation of, I call it the story behind SFAR 73, that goes into the, for want of a different word, battle between the NTSB and the FAA at the time 
with Robinson right in the middle trying to please both. So it it takes quite a bit of explanation uh, uh, from both the NTSB standpoint, the FAA standpoint, and then, you know, little old Robinson helicopter company in the middle of those, those two entities fighting it out. And then the, the, the end result of that battle between those two government agencies was special FAR 73. So uh, people think Robinson went to the FAA to get it. And that's not the case at all. This was uh, certainly forced on Robinson. Now Robinson did have some input, but it was going to be forced on them. Okay. Whether they I didn't were, realize that whether right. they wanted it or not. And so, obviously, if you're going to get hit with a a bunch of regulations, if you can influence what the numbers are going to be, what the things you can do and can't do are, you know, you should. And that's what Robinson did. But it certainly was uh, forced on them. No question about that. What year was that? I don't recall. It's been a long time ago. Um, that. Would have been the mid nineties, probably ninety six, ninety five, ninety six. Yeah, I yeah, it happened after actually. I had kind of stopped flying them for whatever I mean. So um, interesting. Well, as I say, with the experience requirements that are in there, Robinson uh, is all for. Uh, in fact, we think the in many instances the FAA experience requirements for certain things uh, should be revised, and we've. Unfortunately, again, it's back to human behavior. We look at the regulations and people say, oh, you only need 40 hours to get a private rating, 20 dual, 20 solo. Then that becomes the goal. That are That is not necessarily what someone believes the value should be. It's the minimum. So that's the shortest length of time an aviator can obtain a certificate. It's not necessarily what is recommended or what's realistic. Sure. And if you go back to the early days of the R-22, it right off the bat, was used primarily as a trainer. So Frank's idea that it's going to be an individual, personal, private, really didn't come until later on. It was used almost entirely as a trainer. And we had two types of instructors that were teaching in the R-22 in those early days. First, we'd have fellows like myself that had come out of the U.S. military. In many cases, we had thousands of hours of flight time, but all of those hours were in big helicopters. And this was our first experience in a small, light, quick, low inertia rotor system. And needless to say, since there's no FAA requirement, uh, make a model requirement for an instructor, we had a lot of people that uh, used to these big, slower responding machines had a difficult time. The other part of the instructors were airplane instructors that were coming out of the airplane world into the helicopter world. It was not unusual at that time for the local Cessna Pilot Center or Piper dealer. They wanted to get into the world of helicopters. They bought one of these little R-22s. They take one of their experienced airplane instructors, get them at that time 25, and then it went to 50 hours uh, in the helicopter. They got their commercial add-on and then a few more hours and they got their instructor add-on. And so there they are with 60, 70, maybe 80 hours of total helicopter time, and now they're teaching people uh, to fly in this R-22. So those are the two instructor camps that we had. And so we tried to use uh, SFAR 73 to address what we had always felt was we wanted more make and model time for instructors. Yes. I think that uh, it's not uncommon, unfortunately, in our industry to hear people say some disparaging things or they'll, they'll say, oh, you're a Robbie pilot or, oh, you're a... And quite honestly, 
Anyone who knows me has heard me say, listen, if you are a competent pilot in an R-22, you can fly anything. I mean, the ship, it's what, I think it's 1370s, the gross mass. Hell, that's less gross mass than most fuel loads on a light single. And the standard that you flew was 1300. It's, 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 again, it's just, it's human behavior. Uh, little does not mean not good. And flying bigger ships doesn't make you better. And and the the, the yeah the the Robinson's been a fantastic helicopter, and I think it's a it's a testament to American ingenuity and perseverance and adaptation. You know, I, Robinson, the helicopter company, is doing fantastic. I know that it is, um, but it's not always been that way. I mean, we've every company struggles over time over, and the fact that it's here today. Uh, is tremendous. It's fantastic. So one of the things that's helped Robinson succeed is their commitment to aviation safety. So Robinson started their safety program, their training, uh, almost at the onset, did they not? Or when did that begin, Tim? Our first uh, safety course was in uh, late 1982. And you're right. we, We saw right off the bat, we had a lot of accidents with training, with instructors on board. So the safety course was set up for instructors. You had to be an instructor to get into it, and it was geared towards instructors. How to teach certain maneuvers, common student errors, techniques, uh, that type of thing. But it was geared specifically to instructors. And through the insurance industry, we tried to get, you know, first we went to the FAA to try to get them to increase the make and model experience and for instructors. But needless to say, that whole regulatory process is so time-consuming that we went to the insurance industry and we got them to buy into higher time requirements for uh, instructors, higher time requirements to solo uh, for a student. Uh, and also one of the requirements from an insurance standpoint was to attend the uh, uh, flight instructor course at Robinson. We were the first helicopter course to get approved by the FAA as a flight instructor refresher course. Uh, and we've maintained that up until recently. Uh, so our whole whole course was originally geared towards a flight instructor. Uh, and by the oh, probably late 80s, there was a lot more personal private type flying being done. Uh, the R-44 was about to come out. So we opened the course up to all pilots and changed the curriculum a little bit to more gear it towards uh, all pilots. Uh, and that's the way it's been since, uh, since the late 90s. I think the last time they've added it up, I think we've had over 22,000 pilots. Wow. I was going to uh, ask how many go, people go have been through, through the, the safety course. And that's just the course uh, at the factory. And we've also held quite a few foreign safety courses. And and you participate in many of those or did in the past? Yeah, I pretty much did them all. In fact, we did, last count, I think we've done 122 foreign safety courses in 30 different countries around the world, 57 different cities, which has been a fantastic experience for me uh, to uh, go around the world and to, to fly in, in all these different places around the world. So I've got, uh, I think I've got 17 
uh, foreign pilot's licenses. That's awesome. Um, you had to have for their requirement to provide instruction there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now most of them are temporary. They would only be good for the time that I was in the country, in two weeks or a month or something like that. And so every time I'd go, I'd have to get a new one. That's fascinating. So what's the most unique place you provided uh, training? If you had to, just what pops in your mind when I say the most the most interesting spot in the world, a yurt in, you know, Mongolia. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, that that's a difficult one because there's so many different levels you can address that on. <laughs> Certainly one of the most unique ones was in uh, Rwanda, Kigali, Rwanda. Um, the Rwandans were taking uh, pilots and teaching them in, I believe they got about 200, I could be wrong on that, uh, hours in an R-44. Uh, I guess I got 400 hours in an R-44. And then they would transition into either a MI-8 or an MI-17. Um, I think the MI-17's got a gross weight of 25,000 pounds or something. So that's quite a transition that, that they would do. Uh, so we did a safety course uh, in Rwanda. Uh, and not so much the fly-in, although that was fairly interesting too, but... Uh, I got to go on a gorilla trek where really? we, uh, the the gorillas in the Central Africa, uh, and that was uh, absolutely amazing. Did you meet Jane Goodall? No, but we're in the same area. Really? We're in the area that she was in and yeah. uh, saw her grave. and uh, uh, Fascinating. Yeah, she yeah. had a fascinating story. Yeah. It was yeah. quite an experience to be you know, 10 feet from you know six or seven of these uh, silverback uh, gorillas. Uh, amazing. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. that's the beauty. So, that's a, that's a far cry from the jungles of Laos. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> certainly. I mean, who could have imagined? So as you sit here today, if you were to share one piece of advice to a new helicopter pilot, what would it be? Well, that's a good question. I, I get asked variations of that question you know, frequently. But I think it's most important for pilots to maintain a very healthy respect tinged with a little bit of fear, you know, for this tremendously varied world that a helicopter pilot can operate in. I think a little fear in the back of your mind aids in good decision-making and adds some discipline to your actions. You know, we fly machines, and machines break. And we fly these machines in an environment that's not natural for us. I mean, we're not birds, but as soon as you think that you have total control of your machine or your environment and allow some complacency to seep in, this helicopter world will rise up and take a big bite out of your ass, <laughs> the size of which you may not be able to survive. So I would tell pilots to conduct a good pre-flight, use the checklist, check the weather, read your POH, and appreciate this world that they've entered and give it the respect it not only deserves, but requires. That is sage advice from truly a, a, an icon in this industry. So, um, yeah, I think if we can convince people to heed that, Tim, we will have a significant reduction in helicopter accidents. I, yeah, I thank you. I thank you very much. So I appreciate your time, Tim. It looks like we've reached our clearance limit. I'd like to thank you again for your, not only your time, but your insight and your safety advocacy. Well, thank you, Bruce. And I appreciate the opportunity. 
And everyone, just fly safe. Thank you. Until next time, resume own navigation. And remember that unable does not mean incompetent. The information provided during this podcast, Push to Talk with Bruce Webb, is made available for general information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed do not necessarily represent those of Airbus Helicopters, Inc. or its affiliates.